0: Hey guys and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host Nick Williams and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books-A-Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Alrighty guys, welcome back to the show. Hope all of y'all are staying cool this summer and that all of our listeners are safe, what with Hurricane Adalia making lane, landfall today. Uh, I was out in Mobile Bay this morning scouting for teal, and the weather had it looking pretty choppy, and I know it kind of got rough overnight, so hope everybody's okay with that system moving through. And we got a bunch of great guests lined up for you today. Uh, First, we got Stephen Cook, uh, who is the owner of Calico Fly Fishing. Uh, We talked a little bit last week with some of our river keepers, and if after that y'all are looking for a good way to support them, uh, Stephen offers some really nice fly rods and a cut of the sales goes towards... Uh, the various river keepers he's got rods named after the warrior river the Cahaba river the kusa river and i believe the Tallapoosa river uh so if you buy a Cahaba model it goes toward the Cahaba river you know if you buy the warrior it goes towards the warrior river keepers so really cool guy with a really cool business y'all will definitely go out and uh, check steven out um, after that, we're going to talk with Stephen Rockarts. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about his inflatable fishing raft. Um, those rafts are becoming a, a more and more popular way uh, for people who want to access some of Alabama's smaller rivers um, who are looking for something a little bit more stable than a canoe or kayak. So uh, Stephen uses his a good bit guiding. We're going to talk about what he thinks about uh, the model that he has. Um, and then finally, we're going to hear from David Butler with the Cahaba River Keepers. I had originally planned to have him on last week's show Um, but we had some scheduling timing issues pop up so we're going to sneak them in this week and i think it works well since Stephen rockarts fishes the the cahaba river system we've talked with him in the past about it this is going to be kind of this week we're going to focus in on the cahaba and give it a little bit of love because we don't talk about it a whole lot um, but it's a really unique and beautiful waterway that offers a really unique fishery from what i understand for the people who are willing to put in uh, a little bit extra effort to go and fish it so it's going to be good to hear from uh, david today all right, guys. For our first guest today, we have Stephen Cook. He is the owner of Calico Fly Fishing. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I man, I'm just enjoying this uh, little cool snap that we got going on right now. So, man, isn't that the truth? We need that. I know. I know. It was nice. It's cool. It's dry. I walked out this morning and didn't instantly feel like I was in a sauna. Didn't get bit by no yellow flies. It's it's a weird feeling, man.
1: Sunglasses didn't fog up. At six o'clock
0: in the morning. Yeah. Man, that's aggravating to sit there and go from your seventy-two degree house and step outside and instantly just get out of your car. You know, I gotta go open my gate. And you've been riding in the, the AC and you get out to open your gate, and it's just yellow flies and your glasses fog up. That's it. Well, Steven, you're not your name has come up in several conversations that I've had with some different fly fishermen across the state. And I'm excited that we're able to to sit down for an interview and I figured just kind of as a place to start, you know, fly fishing is, fishing is really common in Alabama. Most people fish, fewer people fly fish, so what started you into fly fishing? Did you start with fly fishing, or did you do like most people and progress from conventional tackle into fly fishing? Kind of what's your story there? Yeah, that's it exactly, so
1: uh, I've grown up, my my family has had a place on the Coosa River, specifically on Way Lake, for my entire life. I feel like I've I've grown up on the river, I've lived less than a mile from several tributaries to to the Cahaba River for my entire life, and I, I have always been in the water, enjoying spending, the time, spending time fishing using conventional gear. And uh, so, I guess the transition to fly fishing was probably, while I was in college, my brother actually, for, I don't remember if it was Christmas or my birthday. He bought me uh, a really nice Loomis fly rod and uh, a reel, a full setup, and I think we were of both of the opinion that this means I can now start trout fishing. I had no idea that there was the world of warm water fly fishing, really at all. And his idea when he made that purchase was that we would travel and go and and do some trout fishing up in the mountains. So I started spending some time doing that. I started collecting sort of my own gear as an adult and, uh, we had always had hand-me-down old fiberglass equipment from the sixties. Uh, had no idea how to rig any of it up at the lake house. And then, uh, when I started researching it after getting that rod, uh, I really got into it and started spending a lot of time in the water, a lot of time traveling. And then, Sort of just naturally, I couldn't travel every day. I couldn't travel every weekend. So I would dip my toes in here locally in, in creeks and streams and rivers and, and even on a bass boat, you know, a, a glitter boat out on Lay Lake. I'd spend some time out there with, with my fly rod. And uh, that progressed to me almost exclusively fly fishing. Uh And I started taking guys from work and friends of mine. We would go fish and uh, and they loved it. They really enjoyed fishing with me, and and then it made me want to do it even more. Like, I was the guy that fly-fished in my friend group and acquaintance group. So, that led to me essentially
0: exclusively fly-fishing now. Yeah. What's your what's your favorite species to fish for here locally?
1: Oh, for sure. I, I love the Cahaba River. Uh, I spend a lot of time on the Cahaba River, and particularly in the, the tributaries of the Cahaba. Buck Creek is right in my backyard. So if I have 30 minutes to spare and I'm not worried about smelling like Buck Creek at the end of that 30 minutes, then I will go fish in Buck Creek and I end up uh, catching Cahaba Cahaba bass. I think they're beautiful. I love how unique they are. And honestly, how easy they are to catch. You can, if, for somebody who may love to, they think they would love to throw a popper and catch bluegill on a pond or whatever. It is just as easy to do that for red eye of any species, uh, like the Kaaba bass in any Creek,
0: anywhere where it's wet above the fall line in your area. Yeah, I can, I can testify. So panfish bluegill is, uh, kind of the girl, what brought me to the dance fishing as a kid. And then that was, you know, when I started fly fishing down here, that's, you know, kind of your your best bet and uh, love catching them you know kind of kind of geek out about all the different species that we have and the crosses and all that and uh love them for what you said they're easy to catch but it really impressed me i was fishing last weekend up in the talladega national forest and you're exactly right like it's a bass with the appetite of a panfish and they live in just some gorgeous places like i was sitting there in this little canyon creek you know shuffling around little waterfalls and stuff like that and I was just like man this is hard to beat (laughs) like good scenery and and the fish want to play ball like that's that's my favorite kind of fish is the ones who will meet you halfway
1: (laughs) and and you know you mentioned something there about the 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 environment that they're in like when I was conventional fishing from a boat that's typically the way to do it I mean I, I would go into creeks and rivers and all that but or creeks and streams, I guess. But the majority of the time that I was bass fishing with conventional stuff, I was in a bass boat going fast between spots. And I felt so much more, I guess, connected to the activity standing in a, a Creek. That's 15 feet wide, listening to the water, listening to the birds and and picking my way through that Creek. I felt so much more connected to the entire activity I did when I was conventional fishing and I still will conventional fish, but it just seems like a almost a completely
0: different hobby or activity. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot more connection and I've I've come to appreciate, you know, how that's not very gear intensive, that kind of fishing. A lot of people think that fly fishing is very gear intensive and I guess you can let it be that way, but there's just something about wet wading in a creek and not having to, you know. Top off your boat gas, make sure that your battery's charged, make sure that your trailer bearings are greased, make sure that you pack everything in your boat, you know, hook up your safety chains. Like there's a whole process, right? Getting your boat ready is is a process and the gear is a process and finding fish and playing with electronics, like it all just becomes a process and fishing in a lot of those small streams, you you just fish, you just, you just show up and you Have a look around and you're like, well, I think there may be one behind that log or I think there may be one on that rock shelf right there. And you just go and next thing you know, it's six hours later and that's all you've done is fish. You haven't done any fiddling with anything. You've just been fishing. So I I love it. What a And now you have to hike back. Yeah, yeah, you you have to, right? (laughs) (laughs) You have to get, that's something I've appreciated too, is I get a lot more exercise uh, wade fishing than I do running that foot control on that bass boat so
1: for sure (laughs) well what it it works on the same balance i guess standing on that
0: standing on the trolling motor versus hopping over rock it's about the same thing balance wise right well what what took you from a a fly fisherman to deciding to open up your own business selling fly fishing equipment what's the story behind that
1: yeah so like i said i was taking my friends and um we would finish fishing i'm a firefighter is my regular day job in the city of Birmingham. And I would take fly fish, uh, excuse me, I would take firemen with me fly fishing and they would get done and they would say, man, this is, this is exactly what I needed. You know, it's a complete disconnect from the stress of firefighting. We're not downtown. There's no sirens. It's peaceful. I need this. That's completely different. What does a setup exactly like what you have cost? And the reality is a lot of fly fishing stuff is cost prohibitive for a middle income, blue collar person and you know, when you tell somebody oh, you can get into it for $500 or $800 or $1000 they say oh well then i won't get into it <laughs> so uh, we kind of sitting around the firehouse table that is where we always say we solve all the world's problems and and me and some buddies were talking about the fact that you know there's there's also on top of the cost there's not a lot targeted Toward our species, there's not a lot of equipment. When you look for equipment, it is it's trout equipment, and trout equipment will work, and and that's fine. But you know, if you really want something specific to the species we have here, doesn't exactly exist. It does exist in some very niche markets, and some like true craftsmen creators fly rods that make one of a kind fly rods that exists. But then you get to back into that cost prohibitive side of hobby. So what I started working toward is how can I get firemen in the water where they can afford it, but that doesn't mean low quality equipment. That means the highest quality equipment I can get them in and also a way to give back and keep these creeks and rivers just like they are now. You know, we may never get them back to the way they were originally, but let's do everything we can to keep them from getting worse and and allow everybody to appreciate fish and the
0: experience that I have been able to appreciate. So yeah, that's something I'm I'm looking at your site right now. And I've looked at a lot of different places, Orvis, TFO, you know, the stuff that's up uh, bass pro shops. And yours is the only rod. I'm sitting here looking at your Cahaba. And then it says right there the Cahaba will quickly become your favorite red eye bass rod. And that makes it the only rod I've ever seen that is targeted right. towards that they sort of fishing. That. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's a Cahaba rod instead of being, you know, named after some river out west that I'll never go to. You know, your 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 rods are all named after kind of the local waterways. I think that's great. What what can you tell me kind of about, you know, what made you choose the rod selection that you have right now? Because I see that you have you don't have a huge selection, but you've got four or five different varieties. And it looks like each one is named after a river system. Are they kind of tailored to the type of fishing that you'll find on that waterway? So I
1: definitely wanted to split the options among the river keepers. Uh, if you'll notice, there is one that's Talapusa. There's no Talapusa river keeper right this minute. The minute there is one, you know, it'll it'll follow the same rules as the others. And, and the river keeper will get that money. But I started working, finding blanks that worked for the way I fished, and and that's really, you know, selfishly, I guess, maybe ignorance, I'm not sure, is what led me to the blanks that worked for the way I fish. And by no means am I a professional uh, caster. I'm, I'm not teaching incredible fly casting, but I can enjoy fishing. I, I cast well enough that I catch plenty of fish when I want to go fishing. And so I found blanks that would work for the presentations that I needed. In those waterways and uh, like you said it it is kind of small uh, and certainly i'm always working toward expanding it to what people are asking for and specifically for the cahaba bass and the areas that i fish around the cahaba that seven foot six three weight and eight foot six four weight worked perfectly for everything that i was fishing for in the Cahaba. there are times in the spring when i fish acusa on the Cahaba, I'm, I don't exclusively fish them. I actually kind of played that little game of uh, Matt, Matt Lewis actually uh, challenged me, I guess. He said, if you're going to complete the Mobile Basin Red Eye Slam, you should do it with a rod named after each river. If it's going to be your rod it's named <laughs> after each river. So I think next year I'll end up trying the Red Eye Slam with with a rod named after each of the four rivers. But one thing I've noticed with those names and you know they they had to have some name, so they get those names, and then man, people take incredible ownership in a rod named after what they consider their river, their home water. Uh, there were guys that that have bought rods, guys and girls that have bought rods that have said, "I've fished this my entire life. I'm so happy to have something with the Black Warrior name on it, or with the Cahaba name on it, or Cusa name." Once I saw that that level of ownership, I was like, man, I, we may be onto something here.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's awesome what you're doing. And that's the, that's not the extent of what you're doing to kind of help the local waterways is that you've got some other projects that you're a part of as well.
1: Yeah. Right. So, uh, after kind of getting this started, the Native fish coalition also started honestly at, at about the same time. And I know we keep talking about Matt and you'll end up interviewing Matt, but, again, Matt Lewis invited me to be part of the board for the board of directors for the Alabama chapter of Native Fish Coalition. And that went right along with the conservation aspect that I want to support with Calico. So uh, I've worked with them and it's been great being a part of that board, just getting closer with the entire fly fishing community in Alabama. You know, there's people that fly fish everywhere, but it, it's interesting. You go to a fly fishing event. Where the Native Fish Coalition is is represented, or Calico is represented, or uh, East Alabama Fly Fishing or Fly Fishing Alabama is represented, and you end up kind of seeing the same people over and over and over that are always supporting conservation in the state. So I've made some really good friends because of fly fishing, and specifically because of fly fishing in the state of Alabama.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I've I've we haven't released it yet. I've I've interviewed Matt once before, and we'll have coming up at some point. We sat down, and it may have to be a two part interview uh, that we did with him. We're really doing a deep dive on red eye bass fishing and the work that Native uh, Fish Coalition has done throughout the state. and And he was convincing enough that I did go ahead and join. I think that's a worthwhile organization to support if you're an Alabama angler, as well as all the different river keepers. I, I try to tell people definitely get behind your local river keepers because they do all kind of stuff. I know the Creek that I grew up on, um, had ongoing issues with mismanagement of the sewer system by the local wastewater treatment plant. And they, they helped stop that, you know, you know, they've, they've been working down here locally with the closure plan that they have for the Berry steam plant coal ash pond. You know, people have different opinions on that. I'm of the opinion, I've seen that place. And I think that coal ash 50 yards off of the river, uh in a hurricane zone is is a bit of a stretch calling that a safe you know plan. Right. So they they do a lot of stuff and you know it the, the fishing goes away if the waterway is not taken care of. Right. And so um guys if y'all are listening in and y'all are shopping for a fly rod, this is a great way to get a fly rod support a local business. You know, Steven Steven is is a good guy, blue collar guy, you know, firefighter. That's something that we always try to support is local businesses. And then you know uh, a percentage of the proceeds from that rod go towards local river keeper group. So it's, it's a win for everybody. You get to support a small business, you get to support a local conservation group and you get what looks like some really cool fly rods. So uh y'all definitely be sure to go check Stephen out, calicoflyfishing.com. Stephen, is there any other way people can get in contact with you if they got questions about your products?
1: Uh, you can email me at info at calicoflyfishing.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, at least those two social medias and and then through the website there's a contact me through the website that's i always have my phone with me so it's pretty quick to get in touch and let me take you out and, and let you i think one of my favorite activities is to get people out and just let them rod demo which means we have to go spend some time standing in
0: the creek talking about whatever comes up there we go well y'all so guys give definitely. me
1: a call and we'll go we'll go
0: cast you guys definitely go take steven up on that offer and uh steven we appreciate your time being on the show today sir And thank you so much, Nick. All righty, guys, that was Stephen Cook with Calico Fly Fishing. Uh, Let's go ahead before we move on to our next guest, we'll take a quick break and hear from some of this week's sponsors. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Hayabusa. Hayabusa provides the world with outstanding fishing hooks. Hayabusa is manufactured in Japan with technical designs, functionality, durability, and styles that customers who want to catch more fish demand. Hayabusa Fishing works tirelessly to provide the highest quality products manufactured and ensures current and prospective customers achieve a higher level of performance by using innovative products, from sabikis and saltwater hooks and jigs to freshwater hooks. See what they're all about at hayabusafishing.com. All right, Stephen Rockart. so tell me a little bit. I've talked with you a couple of times, and I've done a lot of floating up and down the rivers here in Alabama, and I've I've been in john boats, I've been in canoes, I've been in kayaks, I've owned more of them than you can shake a stick at, but uh, talking with you, you talk about that inflatable raft that you got, and I see people use them out west, but I've never really seen anybody use one here in Alabama. Tell me a little bit about that. What made you decide to use one, and what do you like about it, and what don't you like about it?
2: Right, so I um well, first of all, um, I I'm in the same boat as you, so to speak, uh, pun intended, uh, when it comes to uh, kayaks and canoes and john boats, and I've tried them all out in the creeks and seen how they all handle and how well they they navigate, and how well you know they they float in that water column and all that and all that jazz. And um, there are several other fellows in the state that have some uh, some inflatables, and they made them they made them look pretty enticing. So I ended up biting the bullet and getting one. Uh, for the guide service, and it is just a complete and total game changer. You have full stability. They have uh, air bladders all the way around them, four air bladders in the actual body of the raft, and you can uh, you can float in that water column by about, I mean, you, you probably won't be more than two, three inches deep, depending on the size of the boat and the amount of the weight that you have in the boat, and you'll cruise over stuff that you would have drug through with your canoe, your kayak, et cetera. But at the same time, you plan on um, going out in those drier months uh, when the water levels are pretty low, it's going to be a lot harder to navigate that boat. But overall, the versatility of that boat and stability that boat offers is just fantastic, especially for creek fishing.
0: Now, I'm imagining yours is made a little differently than the ones that I see in big box stores because there's no way I would take. Some of the stuff I'm seeing down a rocky river here, the first, you know, tree stump that you hit would pop it. But I guess if you got four chambers, right. I guess you've always got, you can kind of limp her home on the rim, so to speak. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you've had good luck with using yours. I know the Cahaba is pretty rocky in some of the places you've showed me pictures of.
2: Right. So um, it's exceptionally durable and it's actually more durable than what I anticipated. So I, I float the uh, a river raft RAT. And I'm also a sales rep for them. So I kind of helped them sell the boats too. But I told them I wasn't going to give my true opinion until I had the raft for about a year. And I have, and I destroy everything I own. Like, doesn't matter. But I have, um, that boat has actually lasted um, for me for over 12, for 13 months now. And I've beat it up, drug it across rocks, slid it across everything. And they're rather indestructible. They are just so, so resilient. the best thing about, I guess, my boat compared to other boats like you were mentioning, um, it's a mid mid grade boat, so it's mid price point, it's um, I guess mid weight, mid size, everything. So my boat's about 12 feet long, um, dry it weighs 142 pounds. So if you need to, you, I mean, I drag my boat out of the off my trailer and drag it all the way down to the put in every day. And um, if you have a sketchy takeout, you can just break it down real quick and pop the frame off by releasing seven straps and you carry it up the hill like a piece of plywood Um, and then you just do the same thing with the boat throw it up over your shoulder and carry it right up so that's a big advantage that i have out of my boat Um, and i would say that the the material that those boats are made out of is just unbelievably strong and it handles those rocks pretty well
0: i know you do a lot of time you know kind of kind of floating down the river do they? I, I haven't seen it. I don't know if, if you can do it or not. Is there a way you can get a bracket? Can you motorize those, put like a little five-horse on the back of them or anything?
2: Great question. Actually, you can. Um, lots of the frames that they make nowadays, um, NRS makes some frames and other boats make frames without transoms on them, um, but they have the extensions or other types of um, transom mounts you can then add, add to your pre existing frame. On my river raft uh, rat. There is a transom that comes part of the frame, and I've used trolling motors, 45-pound thrust. It'll push you about three miles an hour, and then I also have a five-horsepower Coleman that I use on my river raft, and it does pretty well. You just have to make sure you get the long shaft, not the short shaft. Otherwise, it won't draft properly, but yeah, it'll it'll push you pretty quick. It'll give you about six miles an hour down the river, and that's, a, that's pretty fast. You almost think you could pull somebody behind you in a tube or on a ski. <laughs> <laughs> in that little raft.
0: Yeah, I can I can testify small craft, it don't take a lot. I got a fourteen foot canoe, a uh, square stern canoe with a little three point five on the back of it. And if I'm solo in it and if I can get my weight distributed <laughs> right in it, uh I built me a tiller extender. And if I sit in the middle of that uh-huh. boat and the fastest I've ever gone was about ten miles an hour. And ten miles an hour wow. on a canoe, it yeah, it's squirrely. And one of those things in hindsight, it's like, eh, probably probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but uh She'll, yeah. she'll run pretty good at four or five and and it feels a whole lot faster you know if you're idling in somebody's bass boat at five miles an hour reading sonar versus five miles an hour on a canoe it's a very different feeling.
2: it really is did you ever make the mistake of not loading the front of the boat down and then the next thing you know you got you're just sitting in the water with the motor going and eight feet of your boats out of the water
0: so Have you done that one yeah i've i've yeah i've done that <laughs> a good that. bit not having ballast up front <laughs> um this canoe actually just just as an aside, this one kind of fixed that problem because when it sits on my trailer, it's polyethylene canoe and the back end of the boat hangs off the trailer. So over time in the hot summer sun, it has a little hog back. So it actually... Oh,
2: that's fantastic.
0: <laughs> it actually looks... When you look at it, you're like, oh man, that looks awful. But when it gets into water, it looks perfect. <laughs> you don't need you don't need hardly any ballast up front. It looks like it's riding level. But uh, my, my worst mistake I ever made is I had a little, it was a beautiful little 1.5 Road, old like 1960s motor. And I got it from the original owner out of Florida. The guy was an aircraft mechanic. He did some time up on the lakes, Great Lakes. And he bought it and he put it on an inflatable and he used it. He said like twice. And the thing ran like a, it was awesome. But I had it side mounted on an old Grumman canoe that I had. And it only had one, bolt that screwed it to the transom such a small motor had one bolt well that one bolt oh, wow. vibrated loose because it's just a little two-stroke single cylinder two-stroke had a lot of vibration to it and it vibrated off my bracket and i'm going down the river and next thing you know it comes off and it was light enough i was able wow. to hold on to it uh but i'm sitting there now holding a 30 something pound <laughs> hunk of metal that's <laughs> trying to run off on the side of the this canoe not a square back or anything just a regular 17 foot double under drumming and I held on to it, but by the time I got it up overboard, it, it had quit running. And uh, I took it home, took it apart, cleaned it, and it never ran right after that. It just oh, broke man. my heart. So it, was, yeah. it was fun while it lasted. So we well, don't those, have stories like that. Yeah, yeah. I've got more than most, unfortunately. But uh, I do. I do silly things all the time. But speaking of doing silly things in them, if you ever had an issue, I know you take a lot of people out on a guided trip. If you ever had an issue with somebody – you know, putting a bass hook in the side of that boat or anything? How many patches have you put in it in the past year? Or is it just held up fine? Right.
2: No. So the actual body of the boat itself, we haven't had one puncture, nothing. And I'm telling you, I'd drag it in that Cahaba River, especially considering we're not dam-controlled. That water level fluctuates. It, it'll be dead low, and you'll have to drag through a quarter-mile section sometimes. And um, The rocks haven't killed it. The hooks haven't haven't pushed through it. Nothing. So – um, the floor in it, I will say, is a much cheaper floor. It's just an inflatable kind of cheap paddleboard looking thing. You throw that down in the floor of the boat. And I will say that because of dragging over rocks, where the valve is in the back of the floor, somebody was standing up in the back one time, so putting pressure on that valve and then we went over a rock. It kind of rubbed it the wrong way and put a, uh, I guess, a hair, just a small, thin little hole in the bottom of the. The floor, which is an independent part of the boat, you can take it out, put it back in. So I just flipped it over the next day, sanded it down a little bit, polished it up, dried it all up, gave a good little abrasion to it, and just used my patch kit that they give me. Patched it right up, no problems ever since. And then about a month ago, um, a hook did put a hole in the floor, but once again, patched it, and it was such a slow leak. Um, you don't even notice it till about six hours into your into your trip that the floor's getting a little soft. So. And I patched it up, so no problems since then. So yeah, surprisingly, the boat itself is resilient. Knock on wood. I don't want to talk too good about it, but <laughs> no problems yet.
0: <laughs> no, I know, I know how that is. You own you own something for a while, and you know, especially putting your opinion out in public. You know, some sometimes you don't you don't want to be the guy who said yeah, it's awesome, and then a month later you pop a hole in it. But uh, they look not, they look pretty yeah. cool. And and <laughs> uh, once I started looking into them, I mean they. They hit way rougher water with them out west than what we're ever going to hit here. I mean, you see them take these rafts down the Grand Canyon and stuff like that. So they look like uh, for people who want to do the whole creek float thing, but they don't want to, you know, don't trust themselves in a kayak. It looks like a pretty good option. And then storage on them doesn't look that bad. The frame looks like it would take up some space, but nice things you can let all the air out of it. Uh, You know, two, two people can handle it. You can.
2: Yeah, you can let all the air out of it, collapse it down, roll it up. And in the frame um, on the boat that I have, my frame is collapsible. So you just take it apart. It's like a one, two, let me think. I think it's a four or five piece frame. And you can take it apart and stack it up so you can store it all winter, whatever you want to do. So, yeah, it's it's very much so friendly trips. You want to throw it in the back of the truck and you don't want to haul a trailer and you just want to pump it up whenever you get there. Or if you want to leave it inflated on the trailer, like I do nine to 10 months out of the year, um, you just drop out about uh, 25% of the air pressure and just let it ride like that. And then when you're ready to fish it, you float it up to about 80% the night before. And then um, you cap it off at 90 before you get on the water. Yeah. And it uh, works look, wonderfully.
0: Uh, that, that was something I was going to say. I imagine in the hot summer, some you got to be a little careful if you sit there and then you inflate one at five o'clock in the morning. There may be a little bit of a PSI difference come lunchtime.
2: You're right, there's a significant difference. I inflated about 90, and I got most of my information from a fellow named Roel Guevara, who floats with East Alabama, but he, um, he kind of coached me on that and told me in the beginning, he said, you know, make sure whatever you do, um, don't let that thing bust a seam on it. So about lunchtime, especially this time of year, you have to let off about, you have to let off a good amount of air, else you'll notice that boat, my boat gets so firm, it'll become hard as a rock, and once that happens, you're putting everything else at risk you're putting your um your seals at risk around where everything's put back together you're putting uh, the end seams at risk and then you're also putting the uh, the valves themselves at risk
0: yeah well Stephen, even if people wanted to maybe check out that boat maybe check out yours and go on a guided trip would you where's a good place to get a hold of it?
2: a good place to get a hold of that boat is um riverratusa.com you can look at all the specs on that, or they can just check me out on Instagram at um, Fly Fishing Alabama, and there are plenty of pictures of the boat up there. Or they can just reach out to me, and I can help them out uh, the best that I can, and yeah. uh, kind of give them the lowdown. I can talk to them, text them, whatever they want.
0: Yeah, well, Stephen, always good talking to you, and i uh, hope you have a good rest of your day, brother.
2: Absolutely, Nick. Thank you so much, and you enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Yes, sir. righty guys, that was Stephen Rockarts. Next up, we've got David Butler. But before we get to that, let's hear from another one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The days of heading out and blindly looking for good fishing areas are pretty much over. Don't waste time and money on fuel searching for fish. You need the recent highest resolution images to not only know where to go, but where not to go. The knowledge provided by today's technology is critical when planning an offshore fishing trip. Make the choice that professional captains all over the Gulf make and choose Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The easy-to-use interface and excellent customer service will have you on the fish every time you go. Check it out at Hilton'sOffshore.com. All right, guys, we are sitting down today with David Butler. He is the staff attorney and river keeper over at Cahaba River Keepers, and it's worked out pretty well. I'd originally envisioned that we would have three or four river keepers on for one episode, um, but last week we, we talked with uh, Cade Kishler at Mobile River Keeper, and we talked with Justin Overton over at Coosa River Keeper, and that ended up being a pretty full show. And this week, it just so happened that I ended up talking with Stephen Rockarts, who's a fly fishing guide over on the Cahaba River. Um, we spoke with the owner of Calico Ride Company, um, who also does a lot of fly fishing over there on the Cahaba River. And now we're talking with one of the guys who probably knows more about the state of the Cahaba River than anybody else. So, David, welcome to the show. I
3: appreciate you uh, donating some of your time to us today. Oh, my pleasure. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, always happy to talk about the Cahaba River. Awesome. Well, well, kind of give us the the scoop, kind of what's your uh, what's your
0: personal biography? How did you end up where you are today? What's kind of your personal and professional background?
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, I tell people all the time I would have never in a million years imagined that this was what I would do. Um, like a lot of kids in the South, I, I grew up a Boy Scout, you know, I spent a lot of time on rivers in Kentucky, here in Alabama, camping, canoeing, fishing. But but honestly, I never really um, understood my role in impacting and protecting those places. Um, I just kind of was a recreational user. I didn't really feel an obligation to do much to, to take care of it. And, and I, you know, I, I guess I probably thought that there was a lot of um, state and federal agencies that did all that work and and there wasn't a whole lot to worry about. You know, fast forward, I, I was a finance major. I moved up to New York, um, lived there for six or seven years, and I really just missed the, the South. Um, super crowded up there, just a, a whole different way of life. And so I came back to Alabama. Um, I went to journalism school. I wanted to become like an investigative reporter and and tell stories of, of people who um, didn't have a voice. And while I was in school, I started renting canoes and taking – uh, people out on on trips on the Cahaba. And, um, you know, I, I would really, really love uh, introducing somebody to the river for the first time. And then they would come back and they'd have all kinds of questions like, what kind of fish was this? I saw this bird. And so, you know, selfishly, I was like, I'm going to learn more about the Cahaba River just to become a better guide and, um, you know, get more tips, right? Like people will, will you know, kind of come away with with more information and knowledge and maybe share that with people and help um, generate more leads for me to get more people out on the river, and so I started searching around. I had never heard of of river keepers really. I I think I'd heard a little bit about the Black Warrior River Keeper, but I found my boss, Dr. Myra Crawford, who had started Cahaba River Keeper after she retired from UAB, and um, she was really committed to collecting information. So we had heard a lot of you know kind of anecdotal evidence that the the river was suffering, but but we didn't really know what that looked like and. Um, so I came and started doing volunteer work um, they offered me a position on the board and then the board asked me to become, uh, the first full-time river keeper. And, and that's how I got here. Um, in the middle of all that, I went to law school, you know, unfortunately, uh, asking nicely doesn't always get the job done. And, and so instead of hiring lawyers to do everything for us, we, we thought it'd be a great idea if, if we had in-house legal help. And so that's kind of how I ended up where I am that's that's an awesome story yeah it sounds like you've got a lot of good skills and kind of
0: wear a lot of hats and that's a really cool uh that's a really cool qualifications to end up in that position you know so that's that's really interesting to hear would you would you canoe float trips so were you primarily you know a recreational user in the sense that you did a lot of backpacking a lot of canoeing um are you a big fisherman yourself i know you've got fly fishermen involved with cob or river keepers that's something that that you partake in
3: yeah, I'm a I'm a big fisherman. I, I wish I got to fish more. I mean, you know, some people like Steven Rockerts, they got it made, man. That's because they just fish all the time. I don't even know if that guy has a job, but um, <laughs> I, I love to fish. And, you know, it's just something really unique to me about throwing something in the water and not really knowing what's going to, you know, what you're going to pull out. Um, I, I love basically every fish. And so uh, I'm not really a target fisherman. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to catch any kind of fish. I uh, certainly have been, you know, kind of targeting red-eye bass, I guess, more lately. But uh, I love to catch gar. I love to catch uh, sunfish, um, you know, really anything. And so, um, I you know, I didn't grow up in a family where um, my dad was an outdoorsman. He was a car guy, you know, liked to work on old cars, muscle cars, that kind of thing. And um, so I always kind of got my exposure to the outdoors through um, Boy Scouts or friends and family uh, my uncle up in New Jersey was a huge outdoorsman and was kind of a mentor for me growing up um but like I said I never I never really knew or or appreciated what what I do in my daily life how that impacts my ability to do those those kind of recreational things that you mentioned and so you know I started you know really just doing canoe trips is just um something to do in my spare time and um I just I I really really kind of reconnected with my love of being on the water Awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about the
0: Cahaba River, because I know we got folks all over the state and some of our listeners, they're going to be familiar with the area. Um, I have a feeling that most of them won't because I know my knowledge in general of the Cahaba. I know probably the least about the Cahaba. I I feel like just for whatever reason, that one's not quite a sleeper. Like people know what it is, but like you don't see it as much. You know, on fishing reports and stuff like that, I don't know if it's because it doesn't have a lot of big lakes. Maybe it's a little harder to get a powerboat up but in a lot of spots, and that kind of keeps people off of it. I know the, the south end, I know there's some public land around it that I've hunted in the past, and I know people talk about fishing it where it ties into the Alabama, but kind of give me just broad strokes, you know, where it runs through, what it's close to, as far as a reference point on the map, so people can have that in their head. And what type of river system are we looking at with the Cahaba?
3: Yeah, so it's about, you know a little bit over 190 miles long um starts up north of trustful a really unique place uh kind of the headwaters of the Cahaba is um sort of in a little triangle with um the black warrior to the west and the coosa to the east and there's a spot there where you can stand you know basically in all three watersheds and um, so we're the little river in the middle between them and there you know there's good and bad for the from that you know we um, we escaped a lot of the damming craze that, that happened on other rivers. And so most of the river is not accessible by, by a power boat. I mean, the, the lower part of the river, you get some water that backs up from the Alabama River. Um, but for the most part, you know, you got to work to do much on the Cahaba, you know, whether it's hike, canoe, you know, really moved a long way forward and have a more public access. Um, but the Cahaba is not a place that you can go and hop in a canoe and do you know a, a one-hour you know quick fishing trip I mean you you really have to be kind of committed um to get in a boat I mean most of the trips that that you could do you know are going to be more than three hours long um uh, require settling back and forth and you know it's just a little it's it's different and it requires a little bit more work um I, I joke with um the Black warrior and Coosa river keepers that you know, they have a, a series of bathtubs, not a river. And and our river is is still a more natural system. Um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of confusion. Um, when I started here, people used to tell me it was the longest free-flowing river in the state. Um, but I knew that there was a big dam at, at Highway 280, which the Birmingham Water Works Board uses to, to hold back water so um, they can withdraw it from the river for our drinking water. Uh, serves about, you know, five six 600,000 people in the Birmingham area. And so we do have some dams on the river. We have a a large dam at 280 and a couple smaller dams. Um, And then you go down, you know, as you go through Birmingham, you know, Homewood, Mountain Brook, Vestavia, Hoover, um, out into Helena. And then kind of the crown jewel of of the Cahaba River is the Cahaba River National Wildlife Refuge um, in Bibb County, West Blockton. A lot of people know about it just from the Cahaba lily that blooms there and it attracts people from all over the world really to come uh see those flowers for a month every year when they're blooming, then it it you know kind of leaves West Blockton, Bibb County, goes down into Perry County and Dallas County through the Black Belt. Uh and and the river changes a great deal. So as you're you know up around Birmingham, you have some kind of high rock bluffs and so forth. And then as you get, you know, drop off into the coastal plain around Centerville, um, the the whole river changes. And so the the banks kind of uh, fall down and they're, you know, not much rock at all. It's almost all um, soil. Um, the river's bigger, wider. Uh, up around Birmingham, you don't have consistent flow during the summer. It gets really dry and low. Um, we're down, you know, once you get into the coastal plain, you can paddle that pretty much all year. Um, but it's really rural there, right? So the, you know, up around Birmingham, we're, you know, super developed. And then as you go, you know, as you go south of Palina you sort of start getting into the really rural part of our watershed uh, before, you know, ultimately it, it empties into the Alabama River near, near Selma. And it's, you know, it's really, really unique in that sense that you can, you know, start at the top of the river and it looks nothing like the bottom of the river at all. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of challenges with that. So certainly on um, the Black Warrior, or the Coosa, you have people who are, you know, kind of more intimately connected to the water. You know, they may have a lake house and they're swimming, playing in the water all summer, where on the Cahaba you have people that live next to the river, but maybe don't um, spend time in it, you know, every day or or all summer. And so it is, it's something that is revered around the state, but people don't really know why. They, you know, they hear about it. They um, are aware to some degree about how unique the biodiversity is, but maybe not, you know, how important it is to, to the rest of the state. And I think, you know, something else that's really you know, important for people to understand about the Cahaba is when we talk about it being unique, it's not unique because it's always been unique. It's unique because we've done so much damage to the to all the rivers in our state. Um, so when you look to our east, the Coosa River, when that river was dammed, that you know they they kind of say that's one of the largest mass extinction events in North American history. Uh, certainly on the Black Warrior River, you know you had a population of of those lilies that was larger than anywhere in the world um, at a place called Squaw Shoals. And that, that shoal was flooded when they dammed that river. And so we've lost a lot already. Um, And we're, you know, I feel particularly fortunate that my river system hasn't been impacted as much as some of the other river systems around the state.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. I want to read up on that more because you're the second person now who's, who's mentioned that Kusa mass extinction event. And I kind of, I mean, I, I kind of don't want to read about it, but <laughs> you know, I, I've kind of it's piqued my curiosity a little bit. What, um, like you said, what are what are some of the challenges? Each waterway has its own unique challenges when it comes to protecting it. It sounds like a big thing for the Cahaba is one. It's a river that you know it it doesn't have maybe the same you know public awareness that some of the other rivers have. Like everybody, you know, is familiar with Mobile Bay and kind of understands, you know, it's, it's got a big tourism pool, you know, so do a lot of the 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 bathtubs that you mentioned on the Coosa River system. You know, there's some economic uh, benefit to, to places up and down through there. The Cahaba River doesn't seem like it has, you know, doesn't seem like it pulls big tourist money. Um, it seems like in a large way, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Does that lead to anything that kind of impacts y'all's day-to-day activities, make y'all's work week look a little different maybe than, you know, the your counterparts that you talked to over at coosa river keeper mobile bay keeper and black warrior
3: yeah i think our our watershed is uniquely challenging you know i i i would say that one of the the things that i am a little bit jealous about is that um on some of the bigger river systems you can go to a boat ramp put in a motorboat and kind of go where you want to go where on on the Cahaba, you know anything we do on the river is in a canoe or a kayak um, or by foot and so it's more difficult to access. Um, you know, certainly like, so if I want to go look at a, a area of concern, um, I've got to put a boat in the water. I've got to, you know, commit to three, four or five hour paddle, which isn't always easy. You know, I mean, we we stay really busy. You know, I think you look around at the work that the river keepers do in the state. Um, there's 10 of us around the state and, um, you know, I, I'm incredibly proud of of how far we stretch the money that we have. But that means that, you know, my watershed is 1,900 square miles. And so um, we have a staff of five people. Uh, it's almost impossible to cover our watershed. And so uh, somebody calls me with the, you know, pollution concern. If I can't get to it by land, it means I got to put a boat in the water. And it means that that's a full day of work to go look at one thing. Um, so that's really challenging to, to be able to kind of really you know, look out and see what we need to take care of. But then it's also like a, an opportunity for us, right? So we we do a swim guide program, Coosa Riverkeeper and Mobile Baykeeper both do it. And that puts us out on the water. You know, we sample at 29 sites every week, um, every Thursday from May through September. And so every week, I know that we are going to put our eyes on the river in 29 different places. Um, and from that, we've been able to you know, kind of document some changes, identify problems, um, get them fixed. And, um, and we've built a, a huge, you know, library of data where, you know, we're, we're collecting information all the time and, um, when when things do happen, we can look back and say, okay, well, we've been sampling on this particular creek for ten years, and this is what's typical here, and this is what it looks like now, and so we we have really been able to collect a lot of information about the river, which which helps us kind of advocate for it, and, and I think the other you know the other factor is kind of what I was saying to you is that. People have a very casual relationship with the Cahaba. They, they love the idea of it. They drive over it. They see it in their backyard. Um, but their their feet aren't in the water in the same way that you are at a lake. And so there's just a different connection. And so when when people fish the Cahaba, whether they're fly fishermen or, or traditional rod and reel, I, I know that they are real, you know, that they are committed fishermen because you have to really work for it.
0: Yeah, it's, it sounds like an interesting place, and I need to get up there. I've had Stephen on the show several times, and I need to let him float me down the river and cook me a burger and uh, <laughs> go go see it, right? Because it it sounds like an awesome place. What all all those challenges that you mentioned? Um, if if there's people who are listening to the show and they're local to that area, right? That's their waterway, and and they want to do something to help preserve it. I guess what are y'all's most pressing needs right now? What's what's coming up on y'all's calendar that that y'all could use help with? And if people want to help, how do they go about getting in contact with you?
3: Yeah, so, you know, one of the largest things that we need help is is to understand that there's a balance between everything that we do. So um, we get this reputation of being opposed to growth and development. And what we need people to understand is that, that, you know, these problems that we're talking about are not things that we think are going to happen. They're not things that it's not my opinion. I mean, it is a fact, right? Like the the way we have developed has had a serious impact on the river and and we need people to understand that because um, ultimately, you know, whatever the issue is, we're most effective when the community supports what we're doing. And so you know, a lot of times we'll 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 get people who believe that, you know, these are nitpicky issues and they don't affect them and, and they don't really care about a snail or a mussel, but but it's much more um, complex than that, right? So our, our largest problem on the Cahaba is, is stormwater development, all the pollution that stormwater brings to the river. And, um, you know, it certainly has a negative impact on the river, but it also has an impact on your neighbors. You know, I can't tell you how many people we meet whose houses are flooded um, property damage because of poor stormwater management. And so we, we allow in this state, we allow cities to subsidize development by absorbing the cost of maintaining stormwater infrastructure. Um, And in a lot of ways, it's kind of typical of of a lot of different issues in this state. So you see a lot of problems with um, sewage treatment infrastructure And, you know, just like I'm saying about needing the community to be educated, a a lot of people believe that when you flush your toilet, that that's the end of the story, right? But when you flush your toilet, whatever leaves your house has to go through a series of pipes. It's got to go to a facility where it can be treated. It's got to be treated, you know, appropriately and completely. And then it's discharged back to the river. And so, you know, while we don't feel the impact of, of, you know sewage infrastructure failing in our house all the time it's happening around us in the community all over the place right so i was down yesterday um on hurricane creek in the black warrior watershed um investigating a sewage overflow with the hurricane creek keeper and where the sewage overflow was is a really popular beach in his watershed um, there was, you know, a hundred people out playing in the water over the weekend who were completely unaware that they were swimming in, you know, body of water that had been contaminated by by raw sewage. And so, we we need people to desire more information to learn to be educated, and, and not to say that we're right all the time. But I, I do have a lot of experience in, in seeing the impact of these issues that we're talking about. So when I talk about stormwater, like I said it's not my opinion. I mean, I I personally observe it on on a daily basis and so we need people to really care enough to to invest some time in learning and then of course you know we have the same problems that you do in a lot of watersheds we've got trash litter problems all over the place which you know we all pay for um i always get a kick out of people saying well they pay people to pick it up well the they in that sentence is us right right every dollar (laughs) that the state or our city or whoever pays uh, um to you pick up trash, that's taken away from something else, right? And so we do a lot of cleanup, education, awareness events, things like that. And then, you know, we we, you know, really try to um, help communities find a balance between what they want for their community and, and what is healthy for the river. Well, David, I appreciate you sitting down with me today. Guys, if you're local to the
0: Cahaba River, if if I know sometimes you yeah, guys may feel a little bit left out. We talk more about the Kusa and the and the Tennessee and the Mobile-Tensaw Delta waterways, um, but we're going to try to sneak the Cahaba in there a little bit more awesome, a little bit more often because it sounds like an awesome opportunity. David, again, thank you guys. Y'all go support support David, uh, support the Cahaba Riverkeeper, support your local riverkeeper. It's really important work, and I, and I think it's important that we realize that you know Alabama has some really amazing waterways. And, and we've been blessed in, in some ways that's that's let us keep what we have, but there are concerns. There's things we've not done great in the past. There's some things that we're moving forward with that maybe ain't the best idea. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's important to just kind of stay abreast of the situation and, you know, kind of kind of keep up with it and and make sure that you're making a positive impact. You know, sportsmen have a long history of doing that. Um, everybody's familiar, I think at this point with Pittman-Robertson Act and the Dingle-Johnson Act and the different, Uh, Efforts that sportsmen's made over the years. But I think it's important moving into the future that we kind of keep that up. We don't drop the ball as we go. So check out the River Keepers. And David, I'll let you get back to it. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, guys, that was David Butler with the Cahaba River Keepers again. Be sure to check them out. Support your local River Keepers. They do a really good job kind of supporting the fishery. Like David said, it's easy to assume, oh, somebody else is handling that. You know, the state handles it whatever um mean the state ev- everybody now has a lot on their hands and and these little nonprofits that do a lot of this work for us they really need our help they're doing a, a public service and um, if you fish if you like like to eat fish and you like to swim in the water and you just like like the river to be clean and clear it makes sense to support the river Keeper. so check them out we're going to take a quick break and hear from some of this week's sponsors this week's episode of the alabama freshwater fishing report has been brought to you by bucks island Bucks Island is a family-owned and operated business since 1948. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They love trade-ins for boats and motors. They can rig your boat or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama, 35907 zip code or give them a call at 256-442-2588 alrighty folks that's going to wrap up this week's show if you've enjoyed this episode please take a second to subscribe rate and review wherever you're listening and if you'd like for us to email you the podcast you can just text fishing to 314-665-1767 again just text the word fishing to 314 665 one seven six seven to subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the new show each week this week's episode of the alabama freshwater fishing report has been brought to you by texas hunter since 1954 texas hunter products has delivered the finest quality fish and game feeders and hunting blinds in the industry to learn more visit texashunter.com also brought to you by ellen m marine LM and Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoons to bigger bay and hybrid boats for the hardcore angler. You can visit them at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama, or give them a call at 251-937-1380 also by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call 1-888-830-Pond or info at sepond.com. Also brought to you by Dixie Supply. Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply manufacture a variety of metal roofing systems to meet your needs. Whether you're putting a new roof on your home or sheeting a commercial building, they have you covered. Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply, your metal roofing headquarters. Also brought to you by Killer Dock combines durability, function, and design to uniquely upgrade your entire dock experience. Visit KillerDock.com to see more.